Tonight I'd like to begin with a passage from the Sutta Napata, in particular the Atikavaga of the Sutta Napata. And it's a, a part of the Pali Canon that some scholars think is uh, really the oldest part of the canon. And this is a passage that you could say shares with us possibly a different story of why the Buddha practiced, how he got into practice, what inspired him to practice. And it begins by him sharing this. He says, fear is born from arming oneself. Just see how many people fight. I'll tell you about the dreadful fear that caused me to shake all over. Seeing creatures flopping around like fish in water too shallow. So hostile to one another. Seeing this, I became afraid. This world completely lacks essence. It trembles in all directions. I longed to find myself a place unscathed, but I could not see it. Seeing people locked in conflict, I became completely distraught. But then I discerned here a thorn, hard to see, lodged deep in the heart. And it's only when pierced by this thorn that one runs in all directions. So if that thorn is taken out, one does not run and rather settles down. I find this description so striking. Here, the Buddha is witnessing our troubled world, a world of violence, of disharmony, and being so deeply shaken by that. And then looking, right? Looking for a place of safety and then finding a place that's unscathed by taking out a thorn that's in the heart, a thorn that's hard to see the thorn that makes us run in all directions. And I find this uh, also striking because hopefully you can hear in this, just in this description, in many ways we're given the entirety of the Four Noble Truths. Not just our individual suffering, but here in this world, in this troubled world, how we interact with one another, there can be so much suffering. And then the way out to actually see the thorn and find the path to take it out of the heart. And tonight, what I'd like to do is to share with you some reflections about this heart, this, this heart that in which the thorn has been taken out, this release, this relief from suffering. And this is, uh, you could say, the, the third noble truth. As the Buddha says, and this practitioner is, is the noble truth of the cessation of dukkha or the cessation of stress or suffering. And that's the remainderless fading and cessation, renunciation, relinquishment, release, and letting go of that very craving. And this letting go of the root of our suffering, you know, the, the term that's used in, in, in early Buddhism is Nibbana, awakening, the heart that's free, a heart that has had the thorn taken out. And so I wanna take some time with this and, and I also wanna acknowledge it can, this whole realm can be so confusing and it can feel so distant from our practice and our lives. And so my hope is that some of these reflections will make it a little bit closer. We'll see, who knows, but 
see how it goes tonight. And I know in the beginning of my practice, it was something that I was so fascinated with, this notion of awakening. And I, I, I was so eager to find out about it. And I was reading a lot. And this is when I was very, very new to Buddhism and, and new to the practice. And I remember I was in India and I had gone up to Sikkim, Sikkim, which, which is a, now a, a state of India. It was a kind of joined Indian in 1975 in northern India, and in Sikkim, right outside the, the capital, uh, Gangtok, there is the the central monastery of the Karmakagyu tradition of the of Tibetan Buddhism, uh, Rumtek. And it's a, it's a, it's an amazing monastery. And I was there, uh, if anyone, any of you know, kind of the Karmakagyu tradition, it was right after the, the 16th Karmapa had died. And right now the, the monastery is embroiled in this controversy, so it was really before the controversy. And I got there and I was staying there and I had this opportunity, this really this rare opportunity to have this interview with this, this practice meeting with this um, one of the high lamas there. And of course, I wanted to know, like, hey, like, can you tell me, how do I know if somebody's fully awake? Like, that's what I want to know. Like, I want to, <laughs> <laughs> give me the scoop. And then he said, well, it's it's like, it's like seeing the tracks or the path of a flying bird in the sky. And I waited. <laughs> and I thought to myself, okay, come on, come on, give me, give me the scoop about how to figure this out. And um, that's all he said. <laughs> I was so dejected leaving there. It felt so unhelpful. Of course, I was thankful and paid my respects, but it was like, well, I feel none the clearer about this at all. <laughs> um, and he was a high, high lama, so here I am, so watch out tonight, so I, we'll see what happens. <laughs> and also, especially around this um, topic, you know, I, I, again, I want to uh, remind you that that as as uh, your role in listening to a Dharma talk, it's so important to have the sense of taking what feels valuable to your practice and leaving the rest behind. And that I'm just sharing one view. And probably if I were to uh, offer this talk in six months, it might sound completely differently. And also I say that just, just because... Uh, I think it's important to have a, a multiplicity of how we understand this path and this practice and also where it goes. You know, I, I think sometimes uh, the unfortunate thing about spiritual traditions is it can sometimes feel like we have to believe everything that's said from a platform, and that's really quite tragic. For example, in uh, Tibetan Buddhism, I think this comes from the Glukpa tradition, they have a great saying, they say, where you find agreement, there you find fools. And I appreciate that. Because so often it feels like we all have to be in agreement to be together. And there might be something foolish about that, about what it is to really create a, a real community. Yeah, so just one view tonight. So Nibbana, so what is Nibbana? And I'd like to begin with, uh, again, another discourse where there's a wanderer who comes to Sariputta and asks that question. He says, friend Sariputra, it is said Nibbana, Nibbana, what now is Nibbana? And then Sariputta Answers. He says, the destruction of grasping or lust, the destruction of hatred, the destruction of delusion. This friend is called Nibbana. But friend, is there a path? Is there a way for the realization of this Nibbana? There is a path, friend. There is a way for the realization of this Nibbana. And what friend is that path? What is the way for the realization of this Nibbana? It is, friend, this noble eightfold path. 
What I appreciate, appreciate about this uh, exchange that happens is how simple and direct this definition of Nibbana is. It's just a heart free of greed, hatred, and delusion. So it's, it's not some kind of description of some far out groovy experience. It's just a heart that has the, that has the thorn that's been taken out. So very simple. And then the path, the path is what we began at least the six weeks with when Winnie was talking is we're on this eightfold path together. It's what you're doing here. This path leads to freedom. It leads to awakening. And that's its natural course. So for example, the, the Buddha used this, this image to really show how there's a naturalness of when we practice this, whether you like it or not, it leads to a sense of freedom. He says, just as when the gods pour rain and heavy drops and crash thunder on the upper mountains, the water flowing down along the slopes fills the mountain clefts and gullies. And when the clefts and gullies are full, they fill the little ponds. And when the little ponds are full, they fill the big lakes and then the little rivers and then the big rivers. And when the big rivers are full, they fill the great ocean. You could say in the same way, this path has this naturalness that leads to to the ocean of, of freedom. So a heart that's free of greed, hatred, and delusion. And, and, and I want to begin by, again, seeing if I can connect it with the story that, that I began with and, and possibly, maybe not, some of your aspirations here. You know, just, just having the aspiration to be kinder. A kind heart is a heart that is not as encumbered with greed, hatred, and delusion. A compassionate heart is one that has that thorn taken out somewhat being free of fear or anxiety or being less harmful, being free of anger. Ah, this is, this is the freedom the Buddha is talking about. And so connected to our lives, when he talks about these roots, these roots of greed, hatred, and delusion, often he talks about how these roots lead to unwholesome action. And this was very different such a radical, radically different narrative in this Brahminical tradition that was surrounding him. There wasn't so much talk about how one is in the world and how awakening leads to more ethical conduct. So this is in, rooted in, in how we are in the world. Being more generous and kinder, or as I was saying, being able to love rather than merely falling in love. Or maybe the sense of liberating intimacy, taking this thorn out. Ajahn Brahm. Uh, Ajahn Brahmahapso speaks to this, and I love the image he gives with this. He, he says, the true purpose of practicing Buddhism is to let go of everything, not to get more things like attainments to show off to your friends. When we let go of something, really let go, then it disappears. We lose it. That means all successful meditators are losers. <laughs> They lose their attachments. Awakened ones lose everything. They truly are the biggest losers. <laughs> I like that. It's been just becoming a loser. That's really what it's about. It's, it's, it's about letting go of reactivity. And that's, can be, that, that, that's why it can be such a tricky thing. I, I love this image of taking out a thorn because if you've ever if you've been walking around and you get a thorn in your foot or a, 
a, a sliver of something in your hand and then you take it out and there can be that relief or that release. It's that kind of feeling. But the difference is when I take out a thorn, it's a relief from that which is unpleasant. And what the Buddha is talking about is the relief from reactivity. And they feel different. And some of you might have had moments where you started to taste the, the release, the relief from reactivity that is different than the relief from unpleasantness. I still remember the first time I experienced this. It was when, when I was uh, still a Zen monk. And I remember there was, there was so much physical pain in, in uh, the sitting meditation when I began. And I still remember the, the time where I, there was the experience of physical pain with no reactivity. I don't know if I'd ever experienced that before in my life. I think always, there had always been with, with uh, physical pain, reactivity. And then it was relieving. It was like, wow, interesting. This is relieving to be here and there's physical pain in the body and it's okay. Oh, interesting. There's no reactivity. There's no thorn right now. Ah, this is, this is what it's like to take out this thorn that the Buddha is talking about. Any, uh, you know, there's a, there's an image that, that further exemplifies this around Nibbana. And it's around, you, you know, this, this word Nibbana is uh, centered around this activity of, uh, for example, like a fire going out. So sometimes the, the verb that Nibbana comes from is to extinguish, like to extinguish a fire. The tricky thing is, is that the, and I get this from Tanasaro Bhikkhu, who I'm really grateful for, is, is the thing is, is that the understanding of how a fire ex, is extinguished during the Buddhist time is, was radically different than how we understand it. So uh, the understanding during the Buddhist time is that uh, fire was seen very differently. It was seen as this, this kind of this, this manifestation from the agitation, the stirring up of the fire element or the heat property. And with the stirring up, it, for it to continue, it needed fuel for it to continue with this stirring up for it to burn. And the way that the fire related to the fuel, like some logs that's burning, is it needed to cling to it. It needed to be entangled with the wood for the fire to continue. And then the understanding was, is that that when you put out the fire, it's not like the fire went out and it was no longer there. What happened is that the fire, the fire element was released from its fuel. It was released from its activity of clinging and entanglement. So to put out a fire was to actually release, it was is to free the fire. And to me, this gives me a whole different feeling you know, of what the Buddha is talking about. On both sides, both of these tastes, these, we could say these small tastes of Nibbana and these tastes of, of the opposite of suffering. For me, the, the reason I, I like it was, is when I reflect, you know, when I really sense into when my mind is like lost in anger or it's really afraid or it's anxious, for me, you know, it feels like that hook, you know what I'm talking about, where it's just like entangled in it. And especially the intense times, you ever had those times, I'm sure you have, where you're sitting here and you label fear, or you label sadness, or you label anger or confusion, but it's just like you're right back in there. And it's just like the, the hook is so strong there. I feel entangled with the thing that's fueling that experience. And that's where the suffering is. And then you might have had those experiences where that ends, even if it's for a moment, where it ends and it's like, oh, wow, this feels so different. There's a release, there's a relief because there's not the reactivity. Like the fire has been released from its fuel, from this activity of entanglement. 
and I think it really goes back to to me that image that 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 Rinpoche gave of me of like it it is it it's it's like a, a bird flying in the sky that that is leaving no trace. There's a freedom there. And what I'd like to to really emphasize is is just an invitation to begin to notice this in the here and now. You know, as, as the Buddha says, the, the Dhamma is, is directly visible, immediate, inviting one to come and, and see, applicable to be personally experienced by the wise. So it's directly visible, it's immediate, it's here and now. Even right now, you might notice there might be a little bit more sense of ease and to notice, oh, interesting, the mind isn't so hooked right now. Yeah, there might be a little bit of craving and aversion and delusion. But can you also notice that that thorn might not be so deep right now? Ha, ah, this, this is what it's like where the thorn isn't so deep. Or maybe it's opposite right now. Maybe there's a lot of reactivity. Oh, there it is. There's the hook. Or like another image that the Buddha gives, it's like a, a rabbit caught in a snare. Or a fish in a net. Oh yeah, that's, that's what it's like when I'm suffering. Or maybe it is the image itself of the thorn that has visceral, some kind of resonance for you. And the reason I'm, I'm uh, sharing with you all these images is that sometimes in our practice, sometimes there is some kind of image that can, can uh, help us um, navigate and to feel into the feeling of relief or release that might be there in these small moments. And also the feeling of suffering for you. What is that image gonna be for you? It might be something like fire being released or fire being entangled an animal being trapped or an animal being released or a thorn being taken out. What viscerally resonates. And I, I, I really feel like this is why the Buddha gave all these images to allow us to touch this. So yeah, this invitation of what does it feel like to be entangled? What does it feel like to be free? One way that I've played with this is to utilize a, a phrase that I, I got from Ajahn Amaru and to come back to that. And he, it's like he gives these pith instructions of a way to practice in one sentence. And he says, rest in the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of the mind and body. Then pay attention to whatever disturbs that peace. Rest, just rest. Start your day, just rest in, in the natural and peace and ease that might be there. That really is the natural peace and ease of the mind and body. And just rest to abide there. And then what do you do? You just pay attention to whatever disturbs that peace. So a little bit more about this exploration. And I want to tie it into how the Buddha is at times really talking about these flavors of liberation, what I'm going to call partial liberation, these partial nibbanas. There's a, a term for it, uh, chetovimuti which means the liberation of the mind. And vimuti is a, is a term that's used both for these, you could say, small liberations as well as full liberation. And for good reason, because they're connected with, with each other in the sense of the lessening of greed, hatred, and delusion. For example, in, in one place he talks about metta chato vimuti, or karuna chato vimuti, or mudita chato vimuti which means that when I'm practicing loving kindness, when loving kindness is at the forefront, 
there's a kind of liberation there. There's a kind of freedom of the heart then. Have you ever felt that? Oh, here it is. Here's, oh, the, the thorn has been taken out. Some of the, the, the heart is less entangled. Ah, oh, I can abide here to abide and rest in the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of the mind and body. Ah, loving kindness. And then I just notice when that's disturbed. I think it's so, so important to begin to notice these moments during your day, to learn to abide in them. Because really, this is what the Buddha was encouraging us to do, to really taste these partial liberations. And what's been so important when I explore this is um, for me not to worry if it's perfect or not. Not to start to rest in a little bit of peace and ease and then to start to worry, is it, is it really peaceful? Is it really easeful? <laughs> Maybe I need to check this out. Uh, but, but then I, I, I can't en- get engaged in the practice of just resting and then noticing what disturbs that. And then there's the disturbance piece, which you might be well aware of. How do I make that a part of my practice, of this practice of tasting this liberation? I need to remind myself again and again the potential of disturbance, of of the potential of it for for deepening my, my practice. And what I bring to mind is a, a phrase uh, by Simone Weil. Some of you might uh, know Simone Weil. She's uh, a brilliant writer, a, a philosopher and political activist. Some people think probably one of the most kind of, you could say, brilliant and eg- uh, enigmatic people of the 20th century. T.S. Eliot said she was a, a genius akin to that of the saints. And she would, uh, uh, she would talk about this phrase, just this phrase, the separation is the link. And for her, what it was referring to is that she had had these kind of, you could say, uh, mystical openings, this more in the, in the Judeo-Christian uh, world. And then uh, what happened is that she felt like she had this huge period of her life that she felt so disconnected from the divine, using her language. And it was really troubling to her. And then there was the shift in her life where she noticed, oh, this feeling of separation is my link to the divine. Oh, the separation is actually, that's what links me to my spiritual practice. And she gave this image of a wall between two prisoners. If you imagine two prisoners in a, in a jail and what separates them is a wall. It's, they can't see each other. It's separating them. It's the separation. And then one prisoner begins to knock on the wall and it starts to become their link, their connection, their mode of communication. Oh, it connects me. Oh, this difficulty right now, it's, it's, I need to trust that this is the link. This is the link to deepening my practice. Oh, it strengthens my mindfulness and equanimity. I begin to understand what it's like to have a thorn in the heart. Ah, yeah, the separation is the link. It's kind of like this aspiration uh, um, that's sometimes uh, put into words in the Tibetan tradition, uh, which goes, grant that I may be given appropriate difficulties and sufferings on this journey so that my heart may be truly awakened and my practice of liberation and universal compassion may be truly fulfilled. I have to say, when I first came across this, I, I thought, I don't have the guts to say this in the morning. <laughs> <You know? laughs> what a bold thing to say, like, bring it on. Like, yeah, this is great. Like, I, I'm ready for it. Like, I'm, I, I, I wanna go in this direction. Give me what this heart needs. It's a different feeling, don't you think, when you reflect on that, of what it would be like to say that. 
Yeah, please give me these difficulties because I want this heart to have a heart that where the thorn is taken out and this is the, the way forward. The separation is the link. So these are this exploration of what I call these partial liberations, these tastes of liberation that are happening day after day here, even if it's for a moment or two moments. And I wanted to start with these tastes of partial liberation that are possible so that you can actually taste this on retreat. And also because Nibbana and awakening can sound so abstract and so irrelevant. And sometimes I think, uh, you know, so, so much of the narrative around it doesn't help. Sometimes it's helpful. You know, in, in Theravada Buddhism, there, there are all these maps of the unfolding of awakening. Like many of you might know that, you know, there's this, uh, this map or this, this talk of the four stages of awakening. Where at each stage, progressively, these fetters, you could say, of reactivity, of greed, hatred, and delusion fall away. And I remember when I was practicing in Burma, actually in, in Nepal too, with Saida Uvivekananda. You know, when you when you practice often in the Mahasi tradition and you go on a three-month retreat, there is so much of a narrative, and sometimes even an unspoken understanding that that uh, of of the understanding that we're practicing, at least for stream entry, for this first stage of awakening. And in Burma, also there's this influence of this. This um, commentary, the the Vasudhi Maga, which talks about this progress of insight that gives this whole detailed map of leading to awakening. And sometimes around awakening, it's not the maps that we come across, but stories of awakening, even stories of deep insight. And I know at times they felt inspiring. Like I, I even when I sit here, I, I think of like even stories of deep insight that like uh, Joanna Macy has this beautiful description of a deep insight that she had or people from other traditions like Bernadette Roberts or some of you probably know the story of Deepa Ma who is so important in this tradition or this woman in, in Thailand who was really seen to be fully awakened, uh, Mechi Kao. And those can be inspiring, maybe all of that, but I think there's a huge shadow side to just to be aware of whether they be the stories or the maps. And it's because they can start to shape our minds in looking for particular things in the practice, which sometimes isn't so helpful, which just garners more craving <laughs> and aversion. And also what's so difficult about it is that is that often some individual might have an experience, but to remember what happens after I have an experience and I share it like what I am doing right now with you, it's in that moment shaped by my, how I'm situated, my own perception, and what influences this mind. So I might be using a completely different language that doesn't even fit with your life and how you explain your experience. And then as you check out your own experience, it can feel like your experience doesn't fit into all these stories. But the reason that it doesn't fit into all the stories is just because you're a different person, not because you don't have a deep practice. So it gets to be a really complex thing. And I think this is why I find it so amazing that the Buddha kept it so simple, that really what awakening is about is it's just about a, a heart free of greed, hatred, and delusion. He actually didn't give many descriptions of that. And I think he was wise about that because he knew how perception and narrative work in ways that aren't so helpful. So different for different people. And even these maps that we have, these descriptions, it's important to remember how they function. And, and one description of this, this comes from, uh, um, comes from Ken Wilber. Some of you might know Ken Wilber. He's this individual who you could say is obsessed with maps of sp spirituality. <laughs> Seriously obsessed. But it's interesting, this is what he says in one of the forwards to, I think, to his books. He says, basically says, please remember, all of my books are lies. 
There are simply maps of a territory, shadows of a reality, gray symbols dragging their bellies across the dead page, suffocated signs full of muffled sound and faded glory, signifying absolutely nothing. I love that. It reminds me, uh, you know, sometimes I go on these uh, backpacking trips with my wife and we use topographic maps. And it reminds me using the map of how the map has absolutely nothing to do almost with the environment that we in. It, it, we're in. It kind of helps us get through stuff, but it, it's not the experience of the trees and the rivers and the wildlife. It says nothing about what it's like to take one step after another on those trails. It doesn't describe what it feels like in my body and my heart and the challenges that I'll come across. Why is that? Because the maps are lies. Yeah, they're helpful, maybe. But I think it's important to remember that. Just like Basho said, as I shared with you, it's not like anything they compare it to, the summer moon. Also, I, uh, what I appreciate about this simple definition that the Buddha gives us of a heart free of greed, hatred, and delusion that we can start to taste through these partial liberations every day, which I think is really part of our practice. Resting in that natural, the natural peace and ease of the mind and body and then noticing how it gets disturbed. Something concrete. Because I think it also undermines often the unskillful understandings of awakening. And you could say also the unskillful understandings about healing that we might carry. Like what I've noticed, you could say in my practice, is that I've noticed at times there's a hope, this hope if I heal or liberate this heart, if I take out the thorn, I won't have any more problems. Wouldn't that be sweet? That's what I'm looking for. But that's not in the definition that we've been given. Eugene Gendlin, who uh, kind of put words to this, this process called focusing and also did some really fascinating research on asking this question of how change happens in the psychotherapeutic process. And somebody once asked him what he thought mental health was. And he said, new problems. Isn't that great? That's what it's about. That's what it's about, maybe. That's where the trouble is. We have the same old problem. And maybe all that changes is that we just start to have one problem after another. but it's not stuck. There's less reactivity. Remember, and I think Greg was sharing this, the Buddha had all kinds of problems. He had that bad back. He had a bunch of monastics that sometimes didn't listen to him. You know, there was you know, that quarrel, Kosambi, where the, the two groups of monastics arguing over how to use a latrine. fighting with one another. And then the Buddha comes and, and, and gives this, this really beautiful teaching to both groups of monastics. And what happens? They don't listen to him. <laughs> and what does, it, does the Buddha do? He says, well, I don't know if he says this. This is my translation, remember. I'm over this. I'm going to the forest and practicing. Like, <laughs> the Buddha had all kinds of problems. So many Brahmins cri- criticizing him. Cousin trying to kill him. He had all kinds of new problems. But there can be that hope there 
this hope that I won't have to go through that. And I think this is really important just to slow down with sometimes what we paste onto this idea of healing or awakening. And the, um, the Harvard psychologist uh, Jack Engler also speaks to this. He's, uh, some of you might know him. He, he, he's, for many years, he was part of the IMS um, uh, scene here in BCBS. Just, just one second here. And he had this real curiosity, and I'm very grateful for him uh, for this, of exploring the things that we sometimes bypass in our spiritual practices or the things that are lying underneath that can be really unskillful in our spiritual practice. And uh, really a a delightful person, just at ease of heart. I had the the rare opportunity to interview him for an online BCBS course that I was uh, offering. And he had given this, uh, he has this uh, article called Promises and Perils on the Spiritual Path, where he goes through these unhealthy motivations that often uh, meditators can bring to uh, a practice. And this is the first one, and this is the, f- the first one because he th- thinks it's so fundamental. And some of you might be able to relate to this, others maybe not. And he calls it the, the quest for perfection and invulnerability that might be fueling our practice. He says, awakening can be imagined as a heaven-sent embodiment of a core Western narcissistic ideal, a state of personal perfection from which all our badness, all our faults have been expelled, a state in which we will finally become self-sufficient, not needing anyone or anything above criticism and and reproach and above all, immune to further hurts or disappointments. Practice can be motivated in part by this secret wish to be special, if not superior. Awakening will finally elicit the acknowledgement and admiration that have been lacking in, in our lives. And because these narcissistic issues are so pervasive, often in character development. Sometimes this is the the most important unhealthy motivation to notice. I know I can relate to this at times where there's a desire to be above it all And maybe awakening something different than that. It's different than that, that in some ways, petty hope. And maybe it's something deeper than that. Ajahn Samedo takes this even a step further of, of what we can bring to our notion of awakening really in the same lines as Jack Engler. He said, when I started practicing meditation, I felt I was somebody who was very confused and I wanted to get out of this confusion and get rid of my problems and become someone who was not confused, someone who was a clear thinker, someone who would maybe one day become awake. Maybe you can relate to this, right? Somebody that has some confusion, maybe one day there'll be some freedom in your life. And then he continues, that was the impetus that got me going in the direction of Buddhist meditation and monastic life. But then by reflecting on this position that I am somebody who knew, needs to do something, I began to see it as a created condition. I began to see that, quote, I am somebody who needs to do something in order to become enlightened in the future was an assumption I had created. And if I operated from that assumption, I might develop all kinds of skills and live a life that was praiseworthy and good and beneficial. But at the end of the day, I might feel quite disappointed that I, might, that I did not attain the goal of Nibbana. Nibbana. 
Yet fortunately, the whole direction of monastic life is one where everything is directed at the appointment, at, at, the, at the present. You're always learning to challenge and see through your assumptions about yourself. To begin to really clearly see, for example, I am somebody, this notion, I am somebody who needs to do something in order to become enlightened in the future. And here's the turn. Just by recognizing this as an assumption I created, that which aware knows it is something created out of ignorance, out of not understanding. When we see and recognize this fully, then we stop creating these assumptions. And this doesn't mean that we should, shouldn't put forth effort, but rather to notice how there can be this trying to become somebody. That's different than simply taking out the thorn, seeing the dynamics of greed, hatred, and delusion. This is why I, I resonate so much with what Suzuki Roshi talks about Awakening. He says there are, strictly speaking, no awakened people. There is only awakened activity. And when I take that in, the sense that there are, strictly speaking, no awakened people and there is only an uh, awakened activity, it broadens my sense of what this taking the thorn out really is about. But it's not just me becoming. Something broader that can really influence this troubled world that the Buddha was talking about in that first passage that I shared with you. A troubled world filled with violence. Because that's the world that we live in. It's beautiful yet troubled. As Rumi says, sit, be still and listen for you are drunk and we are at the edge of the roof. <laughs> for me, it often feels that way collectively. We have these individual dynamics of greed, hatred, delusion, and then the collective dynamics where we're all sitting at the edge of the roof. And here's a way to begin to take that thorn out that can have an impact. And it does have an impact in this world that we live in. Again, the Buddha speaks to this. He, this is a, a sutta called the Unrighteous Sutta. So we could say unrighteous or unskillful and he He's talking about a, a different time of a different power structure in society, but I think it fits for us. It's so striking what he says. He, he says, when Brahmins and householders are unrighteous or unskillful, the peoples of the towns and countryside become unrighteous or unskillful. And when the people of the towns and countryside are unrighteous, the sun and moon proceed off course. And when the sun and moon proceed off course, the constellations and the stars proceed off course. And when the constellations and stars proceed off course, day and night proceeds off course. The months and fortnights proceed off course. The seasons and years proceed off course. And when the seasons and years proceed off course, the winds blow off course and at random. And when the winds blow off course and at random, the deities become upset. And when the deities are upset, sufficient rain does not fall. And when sufficient rain does not fall, the crops ripen irregularly. And when people eat crops that ripen irregularly, they become short-lived, ugly, weak, and sickly. 
And yet when Brahmin and householders are righteous and the people of the towns and countryside are righteous, the sun and moon proceed on course, the constellations and stars proceed on course, the day and night proceeds on course, the months and fortnights proceed on course, and the seasons and years proceed on course. And when the season and years proceed on course, the wind blows on course independently. When the winds blow on course independently, the deities do not become upset. And when they are not upset, sufficient rain falls. And when sufficient rain falls, the crops ripen in season. And when people eat crops that ripen in season, they become long-lived, beautiful, strong, and healthy. Powerful words for our current times, don't you think? For what we're doing here on this retreat? And in light of that, we can see how powerful it is to become like those birds in the sky, leaving no trace. So I want to share with you where actually that phrase came from that that Rinpoche was talking about from the Dhammapada, this chapter on the, uh, about the Arhant. Like the path of birds in the sky, it is hard to trace the path of those who do not hoard, who are judicious with their food, and whose field is the freedom of emptiness and, signless, and signlessness. Or you could say, whose field is the freedom of Nibbana. Like the path of birds in the sky is hard to trace the path of those who have destroyed their toxins and whose field is the freedom of Nibbana. So may we begin to taste this taste of Nibbana, even if it's in the small partial liberations of slightly taking the thorn out of the heart. Really in a way that leads to the liberation of our own hearts as well of all beings. Let's sit just for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.